Acts chapter 10. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready... He fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals on the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. Now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the man, to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among the nations of the Jews, who divinely instructed by the holy angel of to summon you to his house and to hear, to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And the following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them, and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with, with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, for what reason have you sent for me? So Cornelius said, Four days ago I was fasting until, the hour, until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing, and he said to me, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered 
in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa. Send, send therefore to Joppa and call Simon there, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I went to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present, present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by, de by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all the things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he that was he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that, through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. You may be seated. Good morning. Would you join me in an opening word of prayer before we look at God's word this morning? God of power, God our creator. Thank you for the thoughts that you think towards us. You say that they're thoughts of peace and not of evil. They're thoughts that you desire to give us a future and a hope. Father, when we call on you and go and pray to you and listen to you and seek you, you tell us we will find you when we search with all our hearts. Father, help us to search your word this morning as it's preached. Father, help us to call on you, to pray to you, to listen to you, to seek you with all our hearts this morning. And then, Father, joyfully obey all that which you instruct us to do. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Acts chapter 10 details a world-changing event. Hope you all had opportunity to read it. Uh, we're going to get all the way through it this morning, um, which means we aren't likely going to go verse by verse, uh, but uh, take it more in an overview. So hopefully you had a chance as a family to read through that. But we see here, and I don't think we um, want to just get lost from our frame of thinking, 
I mean, a miracle occurs in Acts chapter 10. We're the other side of it, right? Sure, salvation is for all, right? God's word says it, we believe it, right? But at this time, right, there was still a separation, right? God is throwing open the door of salvation to the Gentiles, and in a very few days, he overcame centuries of biases, of a separation. And as we think about it, it's a separation that he actually imposed. He called the Jewish people out for a special, peculiar people for himself to protect the gospel from the heathen practices of the time that was around there. So for a period and for a time, God actually put this separation in place that the seed of the gospel might be protected to this day that we see in Acts chapter 10. Because Christ has now come, we're now the other side of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, as we'll see later in the text, there's no longer this need for the separation. The gospel no longer needs to be protected. It's full. It's complete. And it's ready to go out throughout the whole world. Not just reside in one chosen nation, but the entire world, which is exactly, as we look back now at our understanding of the world in the Old Testament, that we see. We see different Gentiles being added in, even back in the Old Testament. In fact, we have... People like Rahab and Ruth that get added actually in to the line of Christ. So God gives some foreshadows of that. And he also, in Genesis twenty-two eighteen gives a definite. He says to Abraham, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So what we see here in Acts chapter 10 is thousands of years of God's work, of his plan, of his hand in history, and he signs on this page of history that now is the time. Now is the time for the gospel to go forward to all the world as I've intended from the start. So how does this all-powerful God announce this gospel? Did he write it on the sky, in the stars, or in the clouds, scrawl it on his hand across the sky? Nope, that's not what he did. Did he herald it with trumpets and angels and a heavenly host announcing salvation is for the Gentiles? Well, that announcement is coming one day, right? We are one day going to have the trumpets and the announcement, but that's when Christ returns. So God's not going to do that here either. So how does he announce this glorious, world-changing message? Through two men. Two men he created but men who were willing to seek and obey his will. The all-powerful God of creation chose Paul and Cornelius, who we see seek, hear, and obey God's radical commands while God powerfully guides, cleanses, and delivers, opening the door of salvation to the Gentiles. Here in Acts chapter 10 is the intersection of the power of God and the obedience of man God's gracious enough to choose to work through us, but loving enough not to compel us. Our part is to obey. His part is to do the work. The results come through his power. So again, as a summary working here in Acts chapter 10, we see Paul and Cornelius seek, hear, and obey God's radical commands, and God powerfully guides, cleanses, and delivers bringing salvation to the Gentiles. So as we look at Acts chapter 10, there's this continual interplay of 
man's obedience and God's power. Man's obedience and God's power. And as we break it down into a couple sections, verses 1 through 23, we're going to see that obedience begins with asking. The first step of obedience is asking, what am I to obey? And we'll see God's power to cleanse. Obedience comes with asking God's power to cleanse. In verses 23 through 33, we will see that obedience is difficult. And we'll see God's power to cleanse. Obedience is difficult. God's power to cleanse. And then in the final, 34 to the end of the chapter, we see that obedience bears fruit. And God's power to deliver. Our obedience bears much fruit. And God's power to deliver. So I encourage you as we go through this morning, keep that as a backdrop. Be thinking in terms of man's obedience and God's power as we look at him bringing salvation to the Gentiles announced in Acts chapter 10. So verses 1 through 23 start with two, by outward appearances, very different men. We've got Cornelius we meet first, and then we meet Paul. And the differences between them on the external are quite great. Cornelius is a Gentile. Peter is a Jew. Cornelius is a man of war. He's a Roman centurion, a leader in the Roman army. Peter's a fisherman, largely uneducated. Cornelius leads an army. Peter leads a church. Cornelius is the conqueror. Paul, or excuse me, Peter, is the conquered. Cornelius has a very minimal knowledge of God. He's got just a little bit of light that he's operating on. Peter walked with Christ and was discipled by him. On the outside, these two men are very different that God's stirring and bringing together here to make his great announcement. But from the inside, from God's view, they are not so different in many important ways. One of the things they have in common is they both fear the Lord. They're looking to him for guidance, and they desire to obey him. Look in Acts 10.2. Look at Cornelius. How is he described? A devout man, one that had feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people, and prayed to God always. Cornelius, although a Gentile with a little bit of light, feared the Lord and prayed to him. What about Peter? Look in uh, verse number 9. On the morrow they went on their journey and drew nigh unto the city. Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. So we see both these men coming before the Lord, fearing him, and that allows the Lord to do something amazing through them. Cornelius was living amongst the Jews and living out in creation. And so God was able to reveal himself to him that he was the true God that Cornelius needed to worship. I think Romans 1.20 would be good evidence that this can occur. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Cornelius had light. The entire world has light. Since the creation of the world, the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen around us. So what makes Cornelius special? He took that little light. He was faithful to it. And he searched for more. He took what little light he had. He was faithful with it. And he searched for more. And so he is here, ready and available for God, 
for instruction. What about Peter? Peter the Apostle. We see throughout the book of Acts, we've kind of been focusing on Paul for the last couple chapters, but we've also seen Peter very active in finding the church and proclaiming the gospel, very much his life committed and dedicated to service of the Lord. And here they're on their way. He's doing God's work. But then we see, what does he do? He takes time to pause. He takes time to pray. He's not forging ahead in his own strength, which would be Peter's notable character, right? We've, we've seen him pre-salvation, right? He's, he's gung-ho. He's going wherever Peter wants to go. But here, he comes before the Lord and is checking in, right? Where am I going? Where do you want me to go? He truly is exemplifying Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 6. He's going before the Lord. He's not leading on his own understanding, but he's looking for God to direct his paths. And our God is a God who will guide. He is powerful to guide. We have that as a sure promise. Turn with me. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. Let's see how we know that God is a God who will guide. God tells us in Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. They're thoughts of peace, not of evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. God promises to guide all those who wholeheartedly seek him. How does he do this? How does he guide his creatures? How does he guide man? Well, we see it right here in Acts chapter 10. Turn back there. We're going to see he guides Cornelius and Peter both in very much the same way. And this is how he guides us as believers towards his will now. First and foremost is God's word. In terms of Cornelius 10 verse 3. says, he saw a vision evidently about the ninth hour of the day. And an angel of the Lord coming in to him, saying unto him, Cornelius. And it says a little later, And he said unto him, Your prayers and alms are come up for memorial before the Lord. Now send men to Joppa. Call for Simon, whose surname is Peter. And God speaks. There's an audible word here. What about Peter? Is he operating on God's word? Let's look at verses 10 through 13. Speaking of Peter, he became very hungry. And would have eaten. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance. He saw heavens opened, and a certain vessel descending onto him, as it had been a great sheet at the four corners let down to the earth, wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth, the wild beasts and creeping things and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. What we see here is both men are given a vision. And that's taking the place here that is God's word. Now we have to realize at this time as these visions come is God's word's not complete at this time. Scripture has not been settled. It's not a complete writing. And so God is still speaking directly to them here through a vision. As we now have God's complete word, our application of this is God speaks to us here. Right? Our primary source is here in the word. The word of God where God speaks to us. And that's where we start when we want to know God's will. That is our starting place. 
We see here, though, after hearing even the word directly spoken to him, Peter was perplexed. Verse 17, he actually questioned, right? He had to hear it three times, and even after hearing it three times, he said, Peter doubted in himself what this vision, which he had seen, should mean. So there was still some doubt, even after the word was spoken. So God gives additional help in discerning his will to Peter here. And what he does is he uses circumstances. Right? right at this time that Peter's questioning, the men sent by Cornelius arrive. Right, right on the time. Right? That's a circumstance that only God ordained and pulled together. He started it the day before, and then he's completing it here on this day. So God will use circumstances to confirm what he said in his word. Let me say that again. God will use circumstances to confirm what he said in his word. Let's not get that out of order. Word first, circumstances second. We can very easily get off path by following circumstances without the word. How do we know that? We read the book of Jonah several years ago as a church. Jonah knew where he was supposed to go, right? But then he found some circumstances that allowed him to go the opposite way. He found money, he found a boat, he found a captain willing to take him, and he went contrary to the word of God. He found himself in quite a bit of trouble as a result of that. So we don't want to go out living our lives looking at the circumstances around us. Circumstances alone can mislead. We start from the word of God. So we've got the word of God, we've got circumstances, and then the third thing is the peace of the Holy Spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit, as part of the Trinity, is going to never do anything contrary to the word of God and will always lead us in obedience to the word of God and give us the comfort and the peace that we're pursuing the word of God. Look what happens for Peter here in 1019. So Peter's still thinking on this vision, right? And the Spirit says, Behold, three men seek you. Arise, get thee down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. He's now got the assurance of the Holy Spirit. We see this elsewhere in the New Testament. Turn to Colossians 3.15. I think this is a great verse that gives us instruction of how the Spirit works with God's word. Please turn there. Colossians 3.15. We're going to have very few cross-references today, but these are a couple key ones. Colossians 3.15. And isn't this something we all desire? It's the peace of God. It says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you called to one body, and be ye thankful. When it says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, it's let the peace of God be the deciding factor. You could put in for that word rule, be the deciding factor. Let's read it that way. And let the peace of God be the deciding factor in your hearts. So when we've been in the word, and we're before the Lord seeking his guidance, he will send the spirit to confirm and give us peace to move forward. It is dangerous to move forward in the absence of that peace. It needs to rule our hearts. It needs to rule our lives. The word needs to be primary. So there are three agents at work here as God looks to reveal his will. He starts with his word, he uses circumstances, and he reinforces with the peace of the Holy Spirit. So there are men seeking, getting guidance. And we see God has the power to guide these two very different men to know his will 
and what he's calling them to obediently do. He guides them by the word, by the circumstances, and by the Holy Spirit to set into motion the chain of events that will proclaim for all the world that salvation has come to the Gentiles as well. So before we leave this section, let's remember that obedience begins with asking and that God has the power to guide. So if obedience begins with asking, I'll ask you, are you asking? Are you asking anything of the Lord for his guidance? Are you before him as we found Cornelius and Peter earnestly in prayer? If so, when and how? With an attitude of fear? I want to make a point here, especially probably for the younger ones. You hear that word, fear God, right? That's not like you go hide from him. Right? It's not that kind of fear that, oh, it's God, I need to be afraid, and I need to get away from him. Right? We sometimes think that when we hear the word fear. Right? This fear means a reverence, a love. Hey, I don't want to be away from you. I fear you because I want to be near you, because you love me, because you are the awesome God of power that I need to draw near. So are you asking? When are you asking? How are you asking? Or are you just busy with your own plans, no matter how good or bad they may seem? If you are asking, is the word your starting point for determining his will? Or are you allowing yourself to be tossed to and fro about circumstances and feelings? Have you been in the word before him? Have you spread it before the Lord, as we've talked about in other sermons? Have you spread it before the Lord, looking for his guidance. Because we know and we've seen the powerful God will show you his will. We have that promise in Jeremiah. might be a good verse to hold on to. So as we consider about doing God's will, are we sometimes delinquent? Are we sometimes slow to obey? Is there an action he's asking you to take? Is there a person he's calling you to witness to? Is there a relationship he's asking you to restore? You know, the correct response to knowing the will of God is obedience. Immediate and complete. And we see that with Cornelius and Peter. Look at Cornelius in 7-8. When the angel which spake unto Cornelius was departed, he called two of his household servants, a devout soldier of them, who waited on him continually. He declared all these things to him, and he sent them on their way. He acted immediately, right? He acted immediately. Paul does, or excuse me, Peter does the same thing as we get into 20 and 23. He immediately goes down and meets the men that were sent, recognizes them as the one that God has sent to him, and he invites them into his house in preparation to go with them the very next day. We had always told our children this little thing. That obedience is the right action with the right attitude right away. Obedience sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? It's doing the right thing. Doing it with a good attitude and doing it right away. But you know, obedience is not always easy. And that leads us to our second point. In verses 23 through 33, we're going to see that obedience is not always easy. Upon meeting, both of these men have some very difficult obstacles in their way to obeying what God's just told them. 
Let's look at Cornelius' aspect. He's just called, okay, he's a centurion, right, a leader of men. He's just called a poor fisherman living with a tanner, which was one of the lower occupations of the time, from a conquered people. He's been asked to call to that man and get instruction. That's not probably easy for him to do in his pride and in his culture. There's this separation, remember, between Gentile and Jew, and the separation runs both ways. So he's got a lot to overcome, and yet he gathers his entire household and friends in anticipation of Peter coming. Peter didn't text and say, I'm on my way, Cornelius. (laughs) Right? Cornelius said, God said to send, I sent the men, he's going to come, and he's the one that's supposed to speak. And he gathered people in his house. And when, Paul arri- when Peter arrives, he welcomes him in and kind of awkwardly attempts to worship him, which fortunately Peter puts an immediate stop to that. Right? What about Peter? All right, let's think about the Mosaic Law, how long it's been in place at this point, how ingrained it's become in the Jewish mind and the Jewish society. Right? Cornelius is a pagan, not only a pagan, the Jew would say a dirty pagan, an idol worshiper. One eating things that are detestable. Someone he's told not even to talk to. (laughs) Look at his opening line when he walks into the house. Verse 28. First words he says to these people. You know that it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or come into one of another nation. That's an interesting starter. Right, see, see how that works for you. You know, walk into business meeting or something and put something like that on the table first. But what we see here is the verse doesn't end there, right? I only read half the verse. And even with much still unclear to him, right? Peter really doesn't understand this vision, why he's here and what he's supposed to do yet. But even with that all very unclear to him, he acts on what is clear, Right? I think sometimes we like to have the whole story before we go. Sometimes we need to act on the next step, which is clear, and not worry about the steps that are unclear to us at that time. So fortunately, Peter desires to obey God fully, and he says, I'll continue verse 28, but God, right? But God has changed this. But God has shown and taught me by words, right? I'm, wor- I'm operating in God's word, not how I feel, not what I think, But on God's word, God has shown and taught me by words that I should not call any human being common or unhallowed or unclean. So the light Peter has now, what he knows is he can enter this house. Based on the vision, based on the circumstances, based on the peace of the Holy Spirit, based on those three things, he knows at least the will of God is for him to walk into the house. Doesn't know what he's going to do when he gets in there, doesn't know what he's going to find, but he knows he needs to walk in. But through this initial step of obedience, Peter gets a greater understanding of God's will and purpose behind the vision. Right? So he walks in, sees these people collect, you know, collected there, ready, saying they want to hear the things that God has spoken to him. If he hadn't walked in, this wouldn't have happened. But look at verse 34. Now Peter understands. He opens his mouth and says, It is true. God is no respecter of persons. There it is. The door of salvation just opened 
to the Gentiles. Two men willing to be obedient and take the next step that God's given them light for. Not knowing the whole story. Right? God didn't say, Cornelius, call for Peter. It's your house and everyone's going to be saved and you know, salvation's going to come to the Gentiles. He didn't say to Peter, go here, it's time to proclaim that salvation is for the Gentiles as well. They each had to go step by step. Each work in obedience. And what does God do? He shows his power to cleanse. Right? This whole thing was about clean and unclean. Right? That was the vision, clean and unclean. Peter comes to the house, and I'm not supposed to walk in this unclean house, but God now calls these things clean. Right? This clean and unclean. Well, who did the cleaning? Who's the cleanser? God, through Jesus Christ, is the cleanser. We see God's power to cleanse what's considered dirty as this pagan. In this room full, God brings cleansing. God's power is a cleansing power. He can cleanse what he created. That's what he says here. If I created it, I can cleanse it. I have that power. I am God. So as we think about that, first let's think about obedience. Obedience is difficult at times. It is not always easy. So what obstacles, though, are keeping you from obeying? What has God called you to be doing, and what obstacles are keeping you from obeying? Could it be your pride? Cornelius had overcome pride. Is there some sin that you enjoy that you're just not ready to let go of? You think you can handle it? It's a minor thing. Not a minor thing to God. Is it a bias or negative thoughts towards another person? Is that keeping you from going to them and doing what God's asked you to do? So the question before us, though, is will we act on what is clear, trusting God for what is not clear? Because looking at the text here in Acts chapter 10, I think we could consider that if we're reluctant to obey, we're hindering what God's looking to show us and what he's looking to show others. Our reluctance to obey is hindering. Now, I don't want to give you the impression that it's halting. God will do what God will do in his timing to his plan, with or without us. But consider Acts chapter 10 and how much better it is when he does it with us and through us. Because if these men had halted at this, God would have proclaimed this salvation to the Gentiles in another mode, in another manner. But look at the blessing of the way it was done. Look at the joy that's here in the way that it was done. Now think about God's cleansing, right? The powerful cleansing God. What in our lives needs cleansing this morning? What's dirty? He's the cleansing agent. What do we need to be bringing before him to have cleaned up? Because the wrong thing to do would be to try to do it ourselves in our own strength, in our own power, it'll stay dirty. We don't have the right tool. We don't have the soap. We don't have the cleansing blood of Christ to do the cleaning. Or worse yet, could we be trying to cleanse another person using our own method and our own cleaner to try to clean something in someone else's life? We need God to do the cleansing in their life as well. And we need to have the faith and trust in his power that he could do it.
I'm going to ask the question that the hymn writer asks, and I'd like you to respond. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He is the powerful God to cleanse through Jesus Christ. So we've seen from man's side, obedience involves asking, and obedience isn't always early. We've seen from God's side that he has the power to guide, and he has the power to cleanse. Now beginning in verse 34 on to the end of the chapter, we'll see that there's power, there's fruit. What is the result of these two men doing what's difficult in great fruit? Peter walks into a house full of people that want to hear the gospel. We're here for you to tell us everything that God wants you to tell us. Isn't that a great opportunity? We're always looking for an opportunity to give the gospel. Peter, through his obedience, is given a prime one. And he does exactly that. And the fruit is, he very clearly, he very simply and clearly speaks the gospel to those that are gathered. Let's look at his gospel message. really begins, he opens his mouth in verse 34. He says in verse 35 um, that there's a righteousness, there's a way to be accepted with God. He said, the, verse 36, the word of God is sent to the children of Israel, that there's peace to be found in Jesus Christ. Speaks of Jesus' life, right? how Jesus was full of the Spirit and did what was the will of God and only what was the will of God. Appointed by God to do good, to heal, and to set free the oppressed. He says that Jesus was crucified that he was unjustly killed on a cross. He says God raised him up again on the third day, accepting him. And then he appeared to many to confirm God's acceptance. And then he speaks the final words. And he commanded us to preach unto the people, to testify that it is he which is ordained of God to be the judge of the quick and the dead, To him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believes in him shall receive the remission of sins. Wasn't a very long theological argument, was it? It was about five to six main points that Peter made. You know, the gospel is simple. But the gospel is powerful. It doesn't need a lot of adornment. It doesn't need a lot of flowery stuff attached to it. It can be done in six verses that we see before us here. This morning is your faith and trust in God's power to deliver you by the gospel alone. Can you clearly say that through his name, I believe in him and I've received remission of sins? Don't miss the simplicity of the message, but don't miss the directness and the importance of the message at the same time. And if that's an open question to you in any way as you sit this morning, from oldest to youngest that's gathered here, please talk to someone who will open the word with you here today. It can be any one of a number of us. And it be our joy to walk again through this very gospel that Peter just put forward here that you might know that through his name you believe in him for the remission of your sins.
is what happens here is exactly that. No sooner is the word remission of sins out of Peter's mouth, but the entire household clearly believes and God definitely, distinctly delivers them from death through Jesus Christ. I mean, talk about a confirmation. What happens? They begin speaking in tongues, right? They begin, you know, praising God and speaking. And what immediately do the witnesses that God conveniently sent along with Peter, what what do they notice? We've seen this before. This happened to us. This is Pentecost all over again. This is the Gentile Pentecost that we have in front of us here. God is definitely, definitively, with witnesses, confirming, yes, the gospel is to the Gentiles. He is showing his power to deliver here at the close of Acts chapter 10. And then they go forward and proclaim to the world that they are believers by obediently following in baptism. So this is a very public conversion of many people for God's purpose. Because we'll see as we go into Acts chapter 11, this whole event's going to come into question. This is going to need confirmation. So the intended fruit here is the revelation that God's power delivers all mankind in Christ. And the fruit of their obedience and the power of God to deliver are evident here. Again, God completes his plan begun in Genesis to faithful Abraham. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my name. You see, powerful God dealing with all nations through someone who's willing to obey. So, I ask, if obedience is fruitful, is there fruit in your daily life? Is your daily life a fruitful life? How is what fruit you see in your life related to your obedience? What's the tie for you? And after salvation, are you still trusting in God to deliver you? from any of the challenges that you face here. He delivered you from death into life, but as believers, we still need to have faith that he can deliver us from what we face here until he calls us home. Do you have that trust? Do you understand God, his, the powerful God, to deliver you? So again, our summary verse is, God graciously works through Paul and Cornelius Peter and Cornelius, who seek, hear, and obey God's radical commands, and God powerfully cleanses and delivers. God graciously works through Peter and Cornelius, who seek, hear, and obey, and God powerfully cleanses, guides, and delivers. You know, the gracious God here offers us the privilege and the joy of being used by him to do what he can and will do by himself. You know, actually, it should amaze us that he chooses to work through us. The creator through the creature. And we are invited, though, to be part of his work in the world. But we must be seeking and discerning his guidance through the word, through circumstances, and through the Holy Spirit. We must be committed to obeying even what is difficult or uncomfortable. But we can have full confidence that our obedience will always bear fruit. 
Our responsibility is to obey. God's responsibility is for the results. Are we ready to obey whatever and all he's asking us to do? Will we trust him, knowing he's powerful, gracious, and true? Will we wait for the fruit and praise him and give him the glory when it comes? I want to close before we pray with just a brief word of personal testimony if I can <laughs> uh, this message runs very close for me due to recent events I thank you all for the prayers that you have offered over the years for my parents um, who up until now both were not believers and as I reflected on this call to obedience to do something hard I realized I wasted years God was calling me to something that I thought was too hard. Those of you who witness to family members know that can be a difficult thing. And I would say probably my wife and children were more faithful in doing the hard thing than I was. But this last visit, praise God, the peace of the Spirit ruled in my heart. And the one morning I was able to present the gospel both to mom and dad. That was one I didn't even necessarily expect was the and dad part. And then the next morning, I was able to have a very direct conversation with mom, review the main points of the gospel with her, and then look her in the eye and say, is this what you believe? And with a slight pause, a look away, and a look back, she said, yes, this is what I believe. Our God is powerful to cleanse and deliver through Jesus Christ. Let's close together in prayer. All-powerful God, we are thankful for your word. Father, I'm thankful for the verse that we've seen here in Jeremiah 29, 13. Father, that we can seek you diligently. Diligently seek the truth and your will and you will reveal it. You will be made known to us. Father, help us to walk that way this week. And then, Father, when your will is made known, help us to be like James talks about, the one that's not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word. Help us to take that will and turn it into obedience. Help us to do it right away, not be a forgetful hearer. And then, Father, thank you for the fruit that as we seek, as you speak, as we obey, your powerful gospel will be spread and lives will be changed because your, God, your power is being made known, is being praised and glorified. May we walk this way before you this week. In Jesus' name, amen.